Stop it! Don't open that door! Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast and welcome to one of my favorite months, October. No, it's not because this is my birthday month, it's because I love all things spooky, hence the name Masters of Unlocking and Resident Evil and now, this year for Halloween, I actually live near Sleepy Hollow and I just love that. I feel like the Halloween spirit is bubbling over inside of me this year. (laughs) <laughs> My name is Scott, and you may know me on the digital superhighway as VG Collectaholic. And as always with me, carrying this podcast is Caleb J. Ross. Welcome to October, <laughs> Caleb. Welcome. You know, I'm, uh, I made the mistake of drinking a soda, so I might be bubbling over here during this podcast as well. <laughs> I, gen- I generally try to consciously avoid soda as my caffeinated beverage of choice during podcast recording, but I'm an idiot, so... I'm an idiot who can carry a podcast, apparently. Um, I hope that doesn't rely on physical strength, because I'm also very weak. I'm drinking, like, a 20-ounce Red Bull. So, uh-huh. I mean, between the two of us, at least we shouldn't fall asleep. Maybe our audience will be passed out, but hey, that's their problem. <laughs> I think that's just, uh, that's that's very, very um, cavalier of the Red Bull company to make a 20-ounce Red Bull. I had no idea that existed. I am probably three months from a heart attack. <laughs> we it's it's a good three months to be alive because there's some great <laughs> games coming out uh, in October. So uh, you know it'll be a good one. Yeah, you know you gotta live fast, die young, and all that kind of all that mm-hmm, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Better to burn out than fade away, and all kinds of cliches. Leave a beautiful corpse. Uh, I am assuming for necrophiliacs. I don't know why you would need to leave a beautiful corpse. It's, necrophiliacs are people too, Caleb. That's true. That's that's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded a little defensive. I hope I didn't. Uh, hope I'm not unlocking some other kind of box here. Yeah, that, uh... you really unlocked and struck a chord there. Jeez, come on. <laughs> so a little sensitivity here would be fantastic. Uh, nope, you f corpses. <laughs> no sensitivity is allowed. Speaking of effing corpses, <laughs> what have you been playing? Oh gosh, you must have. Uh... I, I, I'm sure there's a thousand games out there that have to do with effing corpses that I could have come up with off the top of my head, but I, I couldn't. So um, <laughs> I've been playing um, The Last Guardian, uh, which there aren't really any corpses in that game. So th- the one game that doesn't have corpses, I'm able to, to pull out. So I've been playing The Master... You're killing me here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I want the focus of corpse effing to be entirely yours. That you, you own that, you deserve that. Uh, I, that's my gift to you. You know, I, I do have a good corpse effing game though in my playlist. So okay, I can't wait. We'll get to that later. Oh man, now 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 the audience has to hold on tight while I get through my crap, my the dregs. So, I've been playing The Last Guardian. I think I'm about ten minutes or so from completing that game. Uh, though, given the wonkiness of the controls, the the cavalier second time I've used cavalier attitude of the camera. The 10 minutes could very well be an hour and a half, and I don't really know it. So it feels close to the end of the game. Um, a few other spots throughout the game have also felt close to the end of the game, but I think this is actually it. 
So uh, about ready to finish up that game, and that's been on my backlog for a while. Happy to complete that. I also completed everything. Um, the game titled everything, uh, which made a bit of a a little bit of noise earlier this year, I believe, when it came out. Um, really, sort of an experience game above a, a, a mechanics-driven game. It's not. Uh, it doesn't. It's not challenging or anything like that. Um, but I am trying. You wouldn't say it does all of those things. It, it does. Uh, <laughs> according to its philosophy, it does all of those things. And as anything, any type of character that you could possibly want to be. Um, it's. I, I'm trying to round out my alphabet challenge for the Cartridge Club. Uh, check out the forums, cartridgeclub.com, forums, or do, dot .org, sorry. Org. Um, thank you. Uh, wow, bringing it right back to everything. God, I, I, I can tell that you really want me to focus on this game. I'll, God, I'll, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> Channeling. I'm, I'm, we're, on, we're on a mission here. It's very good. It's very good. Um, everything is, is very good uh, for what it is. So go into it just expecting a, a fun experience, a weird experience, something that you know was a passion project for this developer. Um, and it, it shows. So very, really cool and very cheap on PSN. I think that was the other reason I picked it up. So it's been on my backlog for a while. Uh, I wanted to complete the E for everything, or E for everything, of course, uh, for the Alphabet Backlog Challenge, but then um, also it was cheap. So that's what I'm doing. What about you? What's on your playlist? Well, last episode I talked about uh, having started Sundered, mm-hmm. which was a game that I had backed uh, the Kickstarter earlier this year and got the digital download copy. So I've been playing that through on uh, PlayStation 4. I still haven't received the physical copy yet. I think that's being handled through Limited Run Games, who's done... I think this is their ke- second Kickstarter that they've worked with. They did uh, a similar support for the physical version of Plague Road for the PlayStation 4 and Vita. Um, so I finished sundered i would say it's just sort of okay Mm. um nothing really stands out too much about it it's was sort of just something that i did while doing other things and it was in the background Mm -hmm. so you just kind of turn your mind off and and slaughter things which there's a place for that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh cemetery yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah, although i guess you're there a little too late if you're slaughtering things in the cemetery well you know Sometimes it's an all-day affair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very true. Then, after Sundered, I moved on to Destiny 2. Now, uh, I had played the first Destiny quite a bit. Uh, I really got into it, had a couple of friends that played it. Ground way more moon drops or whatever the hell they were than anybody ever should. <laughs> sort of got tired of it by the time Taken King expansion came out, and... I think I just played through the Taken King campaign and never really did much with the multiplayer on that, but decided to give Destiny 2 a try. I would say the gameplay, it's its still the same solid shooter gameplay as the first, which you would expect coming from Bungie, of course. But frankly, the campaign was, it was short, way, way short. Um, not the Order 1888 short, <laughs> but short nonetheless. Um, but I can, I'm fine with short games. Um, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of time to game. I work quite a bit. Uh, so I do, I I don't mind diving into a short game every once in a while, but I did find the campaign to be pretty bland and overall forgettable, uh, which was kind of a bummer because I found, I, I enjoyed the campaign on the first one. 
and the campaign had some challenging parts in the first one. I wouldn't say it was hard, but it definitely had some points where some bosses and things where I had to, you know, try a couple of times and uh, go through and try to figure out what the what the boss's shtick was. And I don't think I died at all in this one. Mm-hmm. I just burned right through and from pole to pole, and it was done. And it just kind of left me wanting. Mm. So is the focus still primarily the the uh multiplayer i think so yeah Yeah. i would probably say even more so i've heard that the multiplayer just the progressions on it has less just pure grinding than the first one had um so i I think that's a positive and i haven't played any of the multiplayer yet i'll probably i may go back and play a strike or two which are sort of the the low tier multiplayer dungeons not the full-on raids but i'm i'm after playing the campaign, I'm really not sure that I even care enough to go back and do that. Uh, there's just so much else, you know, on on the the plate of discovery. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. That sucks. I, I never played the first Destiny, um, knowing that it was the primary focus. I think wasn't the first Destiny only multiplayer? Or did it have any sort of single player campaign? It did have a single player campaign. It wasn't like Titanfall where it was just purely online or purely multiplayer. It was. The entire environment is online, and it's like that in uh, in Destiny 2 as well. But you don't have to do everything in, in a group. Um, a lot of the stuff you can do, it's, you can think of it, of it sort of like World of Warcraft, where you, except even more so, where you can go through and you can level and do a progression of you know background storyline all the way through without ever doing any of the multiplayer stuff, even though there are players all around you in the world. Mm. Um, you don't ever like I all through the the entire campaign. I never interacted with any other player the entire time. Um, there's it's just the campaign doesn't doesn't necessitate that. That's more for the end game stuff with the raids and the uh, strikes and player versus player and things like that. Hmm. Well, since Destiny was such a letdown, Destiny Two was such a letdown. What uh, what other games you got going on? So after I finished Destiny Two, I dived into Yeast Eight Lacrimosa of Donna, and am having a blast. Um, it's an action RPG from Nihon Falcom and NIS America, and I think the best way to describe it is it's an action RPG with a J- JRPG bloodline and an ancient Mediterranean mythology. Hmm. It's set on a somewhat deserted uh, island, sort of like a, a lost planet sort of island where there's uh, dinosaurs and you know there's no no real humans that you come across other than other castaways right away in the in the early going I'm not going to give away any spoilers this happens literally in the first five minutes um, you are shipwrecked and you wake up on this lost island and the island is called the Isle of Siren uh, again the Mediterranean mythology pulling in there hearkening to you know, Homer's Odyssey and and the sirens that uh, would waylay sailors and the isle of siren is a island that no nobody knows what's on it because if a ship sails too close to it the ship gets wrecked and they're basically never heard from again so when you wake up on this island it's obviously a mystery as to what's there and what's going on and what's causing the island to have this shroud of mystery around it hmm. It, it, I'm having a blast with it. It's it's very anime looking, but that's really where the Japanese influence almost stops. Again, the the mythology and the setting is really more. It's almost part 
part Treasure Island, part King Kong, part Jurassic Park, and part Frequency, because there is a little uh, little time play involved as well. The music in the game is absolutely fantastic, and the launch, the day one editions, actually all come with a music CD bundled as part of it, which is cool. Nice. Now, I'm not familiar with, or I haven't played, I guess I should say, any of these games. Is mechanics-wise, is this similar to a lot of the other games, or is it like uh, Final Fantasy, where each game tries to reinvent itself in sort of a new form? It's it's a little similar. I mean, I would say, I mean, Yeast has been around forever, going all the way back to uh, you know the the Nintendo and and the Master System, uh, Turbo Graphics. So it it's definitely evolved, like like Zelda has. Uh, but it's more. It's always been uh, really an an action RPG. Um, game, but it a lot of people think it's a JRPG mm-hmm. uh, just because it's got you know it's it's from Nihon Falcom. It's it the artwork always has looked sort of JRPG, but I would really say the gameplay is much more Zelda than um, you know than Disgaea or uh, you know some of the JRPGs out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be getting Ease Origins. The uh, is that's the limited run uh, uh, release, correct? Yep. Yeah. So I'll be getting that. That'll be the first Ease games I've ever game I've ever played. Uh, is it? Do you know, according to its name, a a a remake of an original storyline, or is it simply just the the name Origins is thrown on there to be cool? I believe it's a remake of the first one. Interesting. I think I'm not positive on that. Though. Nope. You promised. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, one thing that's kind of cool about Yeast is it's got, you know, the the main character sort of runs through, I think, all of them. It's not like Final Fantasy where every game is its own set of characters, its own timeline. It, it's completely unrelated to most of the rest of the games in the series, you know, unless it's a 10-10-2, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, here, your, your main character, the protagonist, is, I think runs through most of the games, if not all. Hmm. I like it. I like it. So now that we've got our playlists out of the way, <laughs> let's move on to our pickups and our gaming archaeology section of the podcast. You know, I feel like maybe I should go first here just because you being the collector, me being the non-collector, I anticipate that you will have way cooler stuff than, than I have. So if you don't mind, do you mind if I jump in? Do the honors. All right. It's going to be quick and filthy. So I got, uh, I'm on a game buying hiatus. So for any new listeners to the podcast, um, first of all, we're sorry to see you go so early. Uh, I understand that uh, me talking so far has probably, uh, you know, more more than whet your appetite for as much of this podcast as you can take. So I I apologize. Hopefully I'll meet you in the future sometime. Uh, For those few of you who are still around, I am on a game buying hiatus. I, I, kind of broke that a little bit. I'm making some concessions when it comes to not buying games. Um, as I've mentioned in the past, I'm still getting limited run games, which those are released often enough that what's the point of a game buying hiatus when you get two or three games a month? Um, then I have a couple pre-orders, but I also decided to go ahead and, uh, you know, not only did I buy everything, uh, the game everything, which was uh, a digital buy during this hiatus, but I also bought I and Me on the Switch um, for my I game of the Cartridge Club Alphabet Challenge. Um, and I, it's very fun looking. Uh, I've played a couple minutes of it, not too much enough, not enough to put it to my playlist section. Uh, but it seems uh, it's pretty fun so far. Uh, hopefully that'll be a nice quick and easy game. And it's one that has been, um, that I've been looking at for a while ever since it came out. I really like the art style and the simple puzzle mechanics. So I'm, I'm cool with that. 
Um, I almost bought SteamWorld Dig 2. I'm a huge fan of SteamWorld Dig 1, uh, but I figure that is just above my price range in terms of honoring the intention of this hiatus. It's $20 digital, so I'll kind of push that to the side, but it did it, it sort of tore me apart inside to push that aside. Um, and then just today, I did buy a digital copy of Virginia. Um, on PS4, it's on sale uh, this month or this week or something for $10. Uh, that's also a game that I've been wanting to play for quite a while, and that one just happens to line up with one of the letters left on my Alphabet Challenge as well. So uh, nice. a couple, couple, of, a few fun games, I think. I always look forward to this part because lately, especially, a lot of your pickups have been digital releases, mm-hmm. and I most of them I've never even heard of because <laughs> I don't follow the digital release scene whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So... I and me and Virginia and everything. I had never heard of any one of those three. So getting to getting to hear a little bit about what may be coming, you know, somewhere down the road in physical form is a nice little gaming exposure. Yeah, I'm always hoping uh, Limited Run picks up on some of these games that I do play digitally. Like Virginia, for example. Virginia got quite a bit of hype when it first came out. It's a walking simulator, sort of a Twin Peaksy kind of thing. Oh, very, nice. very, very, very basic visual style. Um, uh, polygon people, that sort of thing. Imagine if that game Firewatch was uh, was a set in in a sort of a mystery, like an FBI, you know, cops, that sort of thing, mystery, um, with the characters being sort of flattened, uh, their polygons being flattened rather than rounded, and that's kind of what it seems to be. Um, but it did get a little bit of notoriety when it came out. It's one of those games that I just, I definitely would not be surprised. It didn't get quite the fanfare that Firewatch did, which, as many listeners may know, did come out in limited run games release. Uh, so Virginia would seem to be a logical choice uh, for that at some point, I would think. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder, You mentioned it being sort of a walking sim. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, Limited Run Games has also released Dear Esther, which mm-hmm. is also that, uh, you know, a walking sim genre, not to be pejorative or anything toward it. That's just the, the you know, I think that has a negative connotation, but... Um, the I know Dear Esther, I don't think sold real well for for limited run. I've noticed that was one that has always been available mm-hmm. um, on you know a lot of their convention tables and things like that. Um, so hopefully that doesn't you know bode ill for them bringing out more of the genre because frankly I do enjoy I enjoy them too just kind of hanging out and every once in a while it's fun to have a game where you're not you know messing with corpses in, in, in the uh in the graveyard that would be a quite a walking sim if that were to if that were to happen <laughs> yeah it's fun i i made the i made a video a while ago that was in defense of the walking simulator because it is a genre that i think is, has become one of my very favorite genres which is strange to say because it is so anti-game i mean uh if in my opinion uh, you can't have a game unless there's a lose condition and walking simulators by definition don't have lose conditions they they are just experiences um, and then Dear Esther, yeah, I don't think it sold well, and it's interesting because that was that, that was the first, and I think has been the only um, like foil, not foil embossed, but I, I guess foil embossed sort of cover that they've ever done. So it actually did cost a little bit more in manufacturing yep. and everything. And and Dear Esther looks fantastic. It's a it's a it's an amazing looking game, and it gets credited as being the the first official walking simulator game. So that has sort of that historical uh slant to it but in all honesty yeah it's it's very 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 boring it it's very much ob- it's very obvious to me that the developers though talented they are in terms of uh creating assets cuz again this game is beautiful it's very obvious that the walking sim genre didn't quite exist um or perhaps didn't exist at all at that time 
because they do a lot of things that that make you glad other walking sims don't do those things like there <laughs> there there's there's very little story there the story that is there is very kind of hard to grasp and and not really it doesn't really move you the character moves incredibly slow uh it's very linear there's not really a lot to do it would you could almost call it a hallway simulator i mean it's very very linear um the map itself is sort of wide open but you can only go certain places and your and your character moves so slow that you wouldn't want to explore anyway so and it's a very short game too and so yeah it, it's it feels like a tech demo it feels like a way for the people to show off their skills at creating environments and they just needed a reason to do that I have heard that the developers went on to make some or are working currently with some big names to bring it bring uh, create some VR experiences which seems like that's right up their alley that's that's really yeah. what they should be doing so I'm, I'm happy for them it was just a, an indie project and I believe it was it was released as a essentially a source mod for free mm. right out the gate so it wasn't you know a, a professionally developed thing and i think we'll get into a little bit more on the mod scene later in our what's news segment oh uh, you tease gas mm-hmm. <laughs> i like that i love it uh, so <laughs> give tell me all about your pickups uh you, mr collector you well uh i did make a bit of a comeback a couple of episodes ago i didn't have a whole lot i was busy with work uh and i have been trying to make up for lost time ever since so this week uh or the last couple of weeks since our last episode um we come out every second monday i picked up drive girls for the playstation vita now i am Working on a complete Vita set. I have the complete North American Vita set. uh, So I'm just sort of filling in all of the games that are released at this point. Um, And I've also got a majority of the uh, European and Asian exclusive releases that are at least playable in English. And Drive Girls was one of those games that was released in Europe previously. But I do, if a game is released in North America and... Uh, I've already got like a European release or something. I'll replace it because I, I want the actual North American set. Drive Girls is part racing combat, part uh, brawler, uh, and all anime girls. Hmm. Yeah, just uh, roll that around in your head a little bit. <laughs> is there corpse effing? I don't think there's any corpse effing, no. So, Boo, I mean, drive, next. We, we can always hope for Drive Girls 2, I guess. You know, you can't, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you gotta leave someplace to improve. That's a good point. Uh, and speaking of uh, games in this whole anime uh, theme, another one uh, that will look creepy on my shelf is Senran Kagura Peach Beach Splash, which really wins <laughs> uh, one of the best all time special edition names. It is the No Shirt, No Shoes, All Service Edition for PlayStation 4. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that is a crazy, crazy name. I am looking this up right now. You keep talking, sir, while I figure out what the hell this is. It is high, high quality. Um, It's a third-person shooter, and it's actually, I think it's the third game in the Senran Kagura series to come over to the U.S., and I think the other games, and one of the games in the series, I think was uh, like a just a one-on-one fighter. Um, This one's a third-person shooter, and I think the other one was more... Uh, it was a different genre. I don't even remember what it was, but yeah, it's it's one of those games that when you sh- bring people over to show them your game room, you probably want these in just a separate section that you don't show to too many people. Yeah, you lock your doors before you start playing this yeah. game. Yeah, this. If uh, uh, if someone broke into your house to murder you, you'd be more upset about 
them seeing you do this before you die than actually die. Yeah, it's just like one of those things where in your will, you know, you have like, uh, you know, password changes and things. You should also have a section <laughs> of uh, where the designated person to come over and get rid of all of your, you know, any Japanese themed game that you've got, because invariably it's got some sort of, uh, you know, jiggle physics or something attached to it. Okay, I just posted something in our notes doc. Maybe we can put this in the blog post. Uh, please tell me you have this edition of whatever this is. Uh, no, I think that's the Japanese version. Mm. Uh, but I do have a special edition <laughs> that's somewhat like that. I think it was a an NIS exclusive, except rather than butts on the mouse pad, it's boobs. <laughs> and that may actually ah. be one of the previous games in the Senran Kagura series, now that I think about it. Oh, they 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 escalated from butts to yep. boobs. Got yep. it. Got yep. it. Got you gotta, it. Got exactly. it. Okay. Yeah, you got to build up to these things. <laughs> that's true. Oh, man. Well, I I hope the listeners please turn to mastersofunlocking.com to find out exactly what picture we're talking about. Uh, But please don't judge us for it. Well, you can judge Scott for it. Just don't judge me for it. I'm I'm not above being judged, (laughs) clearly. Now, (laughs) at this point, the... The recent pickups will actually turn somewhat better. Oh, well, actually, I take that back. I do have one more Japanese game that I have to get out of the way, uh, and that's Mary Skelter, the limited edition, which is also another Vita game. Um, and the the limited edition was an Idea Factory online store exclusive. Uh, Idea Factory is sort of like NIS America, where they release their limited editions solely through their website, and they typically come with like an art book, a visual novel, poster. Uh, soundtrack CD. They're not usually too big form factor, uh, which I like. I prefer my collector's editions and limited editions to be something that I can actually set on the shelf with the rest of my games and it doesn't look completely out of whack. So I picked that up again as part of my uh, Vita complete set. And then Metroid Samus Returns for the 3DS. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a a popular pickup uh, this last week. Um, The special edition comes with the game, a CD soundtrack, and a a collector's standard style 3DS uh, collector's box. Um, obviously a, a remake of Metroid 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, haven't played it yet. I don't do a lot of handheld pl- gaming, um, despite the fact that, you know, I'm, I've got that complete Vita set, which <laughs> is probably a contradiction, uh, but hey. Man, none of them are open, though. So right, exactly. They all just, you know, <laughs> look nice on a shelf. Now, an actual game that I'm excited to dive into, because I haven't played any of the uh, expansion packs to this is the Fallout 4 Game of the Year edition. Oh, you. I envy your ignorance. I played the base game, platinumed it, so I got through and, and just put a ton of hours into it, and I can't wait to dive into the extras. Um, as I mentioned before, I don't I don't buy digital content. I don't uh, even look at, see what's out there in the digital stores for downloads, um, so I, I have no idea what the extras are, what the expansions are, um, but I'm looking forward to diving into them now that I have them in physical form. And I did get the Pip-Boy edition, so now I have a Pip-Boy for each arm, so I can really look awesome when I go through <laughs> the TSA line tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, that will raise no flags at all, I'm uh, sure fine. Sir, would you put your bionic arms in the tray to be scanned? Come on, I thought this was America! Yeah. Come on! What are you doing? <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Do you have any idea if that Pip-Boy is, is that the exact same one, like, as the one that was released uh, during pre-orders? Yeah, I think it is the the same one that was in the Fallout, the original Fallout 4 Pip-Boy edition. 
which it would be unfortunate. I haven't I haven't taken a look at it yet, but mm-hmm. I know that the the problem with the first one was it didn't fit like the the newer bigger phones. So I'm hoping that they actually adjusted that because um, I think when I got the first one, the iPhone six pluses had just come out, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and people were complaining that that size phone didn't fit into the because it, it, the Pip Boy that comes with it. If for anybody that doesn't know out there is essentially a a giant fanny pack for your arm that holds your phone (laughs) very very uh uh, space conscious um yeah would you would you use it though even if it did fit your phone no i mean i i (laughs) I haven't even opened the original fallout 4 pip boy edition that i have it just sits you know all shiny and sealed on my game shelf so and who knows? This one may too. I don't know. Well, I I almost pulled the trigger on buying a a Pit Boy edition for this Game of the Year edition. Um, I didn't uh, just because it it would be hard to justify that purchase to my wife, especially considering I already had the game. So, but you know, I, I can always look look fondly on other people who do have it in their collection. Right, right. You know, <laughs> look away, look away. Um, one thing though, that was kind of nice. I think the, this version, the Pip Boy for the Fallout 4 game of the year was actually quite a bit cheaper. I, if I remember correctly, I think the, the original Pip Boy edition, um, was like $150 retail. And this one was $99 retail. And then with Gamers Club Unlocked at Best Buy, um, you get 20% off of any game purchase. So it actually ended up only costing me 79 instead of 100 And considering the, uh, the the DLC, if you even if you got it on its best time when you got the season pass was $30, you're actually paying less than you would buying the game and the DLC together. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, that's, that's a great point. Um, so all in all, I think it's a... It's a pretty pretty fantastic price for for the collection that you get, and mm-hmm. just looking at the looking back at my game database here, and I think I must have misspoke because it looks like I paid a hundred dollars and seven cents for my Fallout Pip Boy edition from Best Buy in 2015. I don't remember if they had Gamers Club unlocked or not at that point, so I don't know if that was the actual price or if that was a post twenty percent discount price. So maybe maybe it was one hundred and twenty bucks. Yeah, it feels like it would have to be a post, uh, per, uh, a cost um, with the, with the Gamers Club Unlocked already included because I I remember not buying it because of the price and if it were one hundred dollars I probably could have justified it. So yeah, the the original one too it had like a nice actual plastic case for the Pip Boy edition that looks like uh, something that would have come right out of the game world, whereas this one the game of the year version doesn't uh, i don't believe it I, like i said i haven't opened it yet but the box is quite a bit smaller mm. and then i just have one more i guess themed set of pickups after hearing you know, mighty q dog talk about his collection and and building of his collection of the sega master system a game a system which i really don't have much history with at all um, I didn't have one, didn't even really play one ever growing up. Um, they were not common where I, you know, where I grew up uh, in Wisconsin. I don't remember even ever seeing one growing up. And when I owned a game store, too, in that same area, or a couple of game stores, I think I can probably count on one hand the total number of Master System games that were ever traded in. It just was not found anywhere. What about, and we're sort of from the same, you know, general 
part of the country. Did you have that same experience or do you re- recall seeing Master System games back in the day? No, I had never even heard of a Master System until I was well out of high school and well out of the small town that I grew up in. I think uh, any sight of a Master System in my town probably would have been greeted with uh, uh, dismissive remarks about it not being a real Nintendo. So (laughs) (laughs) it would not have had an impact at all. Um, And I've never personally played one, so I'm not dismissing the, the system itself. It's just, yeah, it was not a thing where I grew up. It was Sega and Nintendo full stop. Yep, absolutely. I be really the Genesis was the first time I ever even heard of Sega, really. I mean, when that came out in 89 was and one of my buddies had one and had Sonic and that was the first time I remember ever hearing even the word Sega. Yeah, and actually just now when I said it was Sega and Nintendo full stop in my town, that goes to show you how entrenched this is because, you know, the master system is Sega. So what I really meant was it was Genesis or Nintendo or (laughs) NES or nothing. It's still so ingrained that I think Sega is Genesis and that's it. Yeah, it's interesting. And then, I mean, hearing Mighty Q-Dog talk about it and how ingrained it was with him and his brothers playing it as kids. And I don't know exactly where they grew up, but I'm wondering if like the Turbo Graphics was seemed to be more popular here on the east coast like a lot of people out here tend to where i live now tend to know more about the turbo graphics and nec i wonder if there was a a more regional following for the master system as well but one of the one of the pickups i landed just this past week was and this sort of got me onto thinking well you know maybe the master system is a collection that i'll end up going to try to complete prior to this week i only had i think 14 master system games and had never played any of them anyway what set me down this path of thinking maybe i will start collecting for the sega master system was uh, i got a one of the sega master systems in this game this term is used far too liberally i think but one of the sega master systems holy grails uh, and that is buster douglas knockout boxing which outside of a couple of the um upc variants it's probably the rarest game on the sega master system um there are i think four games that in the u.s apparently had were brought over from Europe, so the same exact game, same exact package, same exact cart, manual, and everything, that were just brought over from Europe and then had a UPC sticker put on them, Um, and that's really the only way you can differentiate, one of them being Sonic, and off the top of my head, I don't remember what the other three are. But of an actual U.S. release, the Buster Douglas is the rarest title. So after I found that, and it's just absolutely gorgeous condition, I thought, you know, I'll grab that, and I will, as Mighty Q-Dog says, be on the road to 114, since mm-hmm. there are 114 U.S. Sega Master System games. And as I mentioned, prior to buying Buster Douglas, um, I had 14, um, none of which I had any attachment to, um, and really, again, had no no real history with the system. So I'm looking into diving in and learning about a system. It's going to be fun, kind of uncovering a brand new uh, unknown territory. It's like video game exploring. Yeah, that's awesome. And considering, uh, I know you like to collect sealed uh, games, 
I'm guessing those are going to be very, very difficult to find for a Sega Master System, if not impossible. So this gives you the opportunity to sort of play those games and, and sort of rediscover that whole thing. So that's very cool. Yeah, exactly. I have I have zero interest in picking up any sealed Master System games just for that very reason. So everything will be, you know, actually playable, um, which is definitely a benefit. Ironically enough, a couple of days after I had actually, or actually I think the day after I had received my, my Buster Douglas uh, in the mail and you know unboxed it and, and cuddled it like Gollum and the precious <laughs> ring, I ended up, I had been, I used to collect back in, in high school, um, you know, 20 years ago, I had collected pro wrestling figures and I had had a complete set of the wwf figures made by hasbro um you know complete like full still sealed in their packages and i had sold off over the last 10 years most of those um and they've gotten quite valuable but i still had i think four four or five uh of them left um and two of them are two of the more rare variants and i ended up selling one of them on ebay and decided that I would turn around and put that into some Sega Master System games. And just so happened that it just was timing that when I turned around and did a search for uh, some Sega Master System, you know, just a lot, because, again, I only had 15 games, so virtually any lot I found would have primarily stuff that I needed. And the first thing I found was a lot of 45 uh, Sega Master System games, most of which are complete in box. They look like they're in good shape. Came with a system, a lo- one of the light guns, a couple of controllers, the 3D glasses, and oddly enough, the guy selling it is about 20 minutes from where I live. Oh, wow. So I actually worked out a deal with him and got a great deal on on the lot um, and effectively traded half of that one uh, wrestling figure for uh, half of the collection of the Sega Master System. So, you know, I didn't just turn onto the road to 114. I I peeled out on that some bitch <laughs> and I am off to the races. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So there's no other than you, you've got the Buster Douglas uh, boxing game. Is, is Are there any that you're going to be excited to see out in the wild? Like if you ever do come across Sega Master System games in the wild? Actually, one of the games that I was most excited for is one that just happened to be in this lot that I picked up. Hmm. Um, and that's Montezuma's Revenge. Now, I actually have a, a history very early in my gaming life with Montezuma's Revenge. I think I've mentioned on one of the previous episodes that my mom was a elementary school librarian in the elementary school that I went to. And so after we would get done with, with school, every, all of the kids that were basically children of teachers would get together in the computer lab. And this was in like an Apple IIe computer lab, very early green screens, you know, the Oregon Trail and number munchers kind of era. And we would play video games until our parents were done, you know, doing all of their post-school grading and, and class prep and things like that. So we would have a couple of hours where we would just hang out in the computer lab and play video games. Um, and Montezuma's Revenge was one of, I think, three video games, three or four games that we actually had on those Apple IIe's. And we would play that for hours and hours and hours, you know a week for probably two hours every day after school we would play montezuma's revenge and for anybody who's not familiar with it it's a very early platformer um you go from screen to screen 
um, you know, static screen to static screen and you're jumping over lava pits and you're finding keys to unlock doors. And it's almost, you could, you could really think of it as an early Metroidvania game because you have to go one path to find a key and then backtrack to go back and unlock the door that was three screens ago, jumping over lava and fighting off enemies and climbing ladders and jumping over pits and all of that stuff all in its, you know, mid 1980s glory so uh, i'm i'm looking forward to probably playing that one the most on the on the master system and then finding out it's terrible and questioning your entire childhood crushed hopes and dreams is really what <laughs> retro gaming is all about nostalgia nostalgia <laughs> speaking of which what do you say we jump into some current events current ish i should probably qualify that with a bit of an asterisk there you know that's a fantastic idea I have them every once in a while. So the first uh, item here, uh, so Nintendo, uh, it has been discovered that the Switch contains a, a an emulated, or at least a, a copy of the NES Golf, the black box edition version of Golf on the Nintendo Switch. And this is something that's apparently built into every Switch, and it took some clever finagling for a user to discover it. Uh, now it's not playable from the actual Switch itself. It has to, you know, magic has to happen, but... The idea that this is hidden away on a switch forces you to question why it's there, what's going on, how, what is the purpose of it, all of this kind of cool stuff. So, uh, you know, what do you think about this idea that there's a switch hidden, that there's this game hidden on the switch? Do you think it is indicative of anything that's going to happen in the future with the switch? Do you think it's a that they put something in there for potential future capabilities? You know, what do you think? I really hope not. I really hope that this is just a hidden Easter egg. That would be cool. I, I've heard, you know, all kinds of rumors like it's only unlockable on, you know, one, whether it's Shigeru Miyamoto's birthday or the developer of Golf's birthday. I don't think that was a Miyamoto game. I think that was a Gunpei Yokoi, actually. Oh, yeah. You know, I think you're right. But I think I think that would just be kind of unique. And, and I hope it's... I hope it's not something that's cracked or, you know, released or whatever. I hope it's just something that is... Uh, you know, part of the Switch's lore. And I, cause part of me hopes that it's never busted. And it's just a, a question about, hey, what in the hell was that? <laughs> yeah, uh, especially if it is, I think that, especially if it is related to Gunpei Yokoi or whomever, um, I think it would be nice if it wasn't unlockable, even in that case. Like, even if there was a legitimate reason for it being there, it was just a way to honor someone or whatever. Or if it was put there just because someone had a wild hair up their ass and they thought it would be funny. Um, either way, yeah, I, I, t- I tend to agree with you on that. It's just kind of a cool thing. My, my thought originally was that this seemed that this could be indicative of using the Switch, uh, of Nintendo using the Switch as an emulation system at some point. So, you know, actually allowing you to buy, uh, maybe that's how the virtual console would work, because it would actually send, send you know, emulated uh, images, disk images kind of things to the system rather than using anything else. But I think that would be too suspect to hacking and filling it with your own ROMs. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I think it's kind of cool. I agree. I mean, I did, I think I read a, an article where it talked about this and that what was found on there was actually, it was uh, code specifically to emulate golf itself it was it didn't have any ability to run any any other software or anything uh, and in fact it was it was codenamed uh flog which you know is golf backwards <laughs> <laughs> so good 
Yeah, I, I I I like you know little hidden things like that. I think it's a it's a neat little little head nod to the Easter eggs of uh, of classic gaming. Yeah, if you had a, a system, a console, and you were going to put an Easter egg like this, what would you do? I would put in. I'm put them on the spot. This isn't in our notes, people. I would put in Mario Tennis for the Virtual Boy. Oh, nice, nice. That's a good one. Oh man! Except make the contrast of the reds to the blacks even more so, so it's literally just impossible to play. Like exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically you know anybody who unlocks it is guaranteed to get a migraine. I like it. I like it. There's an, there's a there's a sound uh, frequency that you can barely hear that just drives you nuts and doing anything you possibly can to prevent someone from actually engaging and playing with the system. I think that's a fantastic idea. Yeah. You know I'm, I'm <laughs> full of them. Any any sort of business crippling ideas, you know. To, Shoot me an email. I, I got loads of them. Speaking of business crippling idea, uh, Fallout 4 Creation Club went live. Uh, this probably isn't a business crippling idea. I was a little bit grandiose with that statement. My apologies. I uh, So the Creation Club went live, uh, and this is for anyone who is not familiar, or for those people who are familiar and just want to hear someone else talk about something you already know, the Creation Club is the Bethesda's uh, sort of controlled mod environment where you can buy mods off of the a, a, a off of a store essentially rather than getting mods for free from users so um, it's been put uh, there's been some some hesitancy to accept this there's it's something Bethesda has tried in the past so it's not brand new but the arguments both in favor and against it both seem equally reasonable to me uh, people are against it because Bethesda is now charging for something that people were creating for free and that was part of a free ecosystem and that seems wrong. Uh, but then the people in favor of it, including Bethesda themselves, say we're paying people for mods that they were creating anyway. Uh, we are now giving them a way to make money off of these mods if they so want to. So at the end of the day, the users probably don't necessarily benefit unless Bethesda is able to control the, the quality of these of these mods, which I'm assuming they probably are to some degree. I don't know why they wouldn't. Um, so it's really interesting to me that the Bethesda is doing this. Um, I personally am of the fa- I'm of the belief that it is a good thing. Um, I think it's great for creators to get paid for their creations. Uh, I don't believe that this is, and I could be wrong here, but I don't believe that this excludes the uh, free mod systems entirely. I believe, especially on PC, I'm sure you can still create mods outside of the ecosystem of this uh, of this store. Um, on consoles, you probably do have to go through the store. I don't know. I couldn't really say that specifically, but I think it's really interesting. Um, what do you think, Scott? I wonder how many of the mods, given this sort of control and and pay-for-play structure, will be prevented from gaining any sort of critical mass uh, and critical mass of support with a pay model. Um, I think you look through sort of the history of modding and some of the big mods that have turned out to be successful and and launch businesses and and launch software developers have been free. Uh, You look at like Dota, Defense of the Ancients for Warcraft, um, Counter-Strike for Half-Life, the Stanley Parable for Source, Gary's Mod for Source, Rome Total Realism, Dear Esther. All of these games were basically free mods and the free aspect of them allowed them to get uh, a lot of support and a lot of play and and really ultimately make names for those developers. So I just hope that it doesn't end up hurting and constraining the the Fallout 4 mod community. 
That's a really good point. I never, I never actually thought about that, um, even in my long ramble uh, when I was kind of giving my thoughts about it. I, n- I never thought about it. And even more than that, would it, wouldn't it make, wouldn't it be against Bethesda's, not in Bethesda's best, best interests, even if they were to say, even if they were, if they were open to the idea of these mods, quote unquote, catching on and and creating something larger. It seems like they would want to have a stake in that something larger. So would their just business interests, even if it didn't have to do with price, if their business interests would restrain these mods from really taking off and becoming something of their own? Because now that Bethesda is paying you for these mods, uh, they now, I would assume, have some sort of claim to what you create with them. And, and they're going to be a little bit more restrictive with their with their code base, I would, I would imagine. I'm not sure how that would turn out, actually, because, I mean, if you look at... Um, Defense of the Ancients and Dota that eventually got, um, you know, absorbed and purchased by Blizzard, um, and it was a Warcraft mod. Uh, same with Counter Strike and and Valve, it was a Half Life mod. Uh, Stanley Parable, Gary's mod, all of these things sort of became, uh, I believe, uh, owned effectively in the long run by the 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 publisher of the game that was being modded. And I don't know if it's that just because they're, they're close, you know, by nature of that's the, the base software, they're close with the, the modding community and it has the easiest path mm. to, to profitability. I mean, it would be tough for a developer of Dota to go and sell it to anybody but Blizzard because it, it requires the base game to, to function. You'd have to create something from the ground up, which they eventually did with League of Legends. But the quickest past path to immediate monetization for a small studio is to just go ahead and sell it to, to um, you know, the in this case uh, Bethesda with Fallout. So I th- I'm not sure that 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 it really is against Bethesda's interest. Where if you could have something that turned out to be a mega hit like Dota or Counter Strike did. Um, I think you'd take that risk because I don't think you're putting downward pressure on your game by having that avenue available. You and your logic, you son of a bitch. It's the damnedest thing. <laughs> Speaking of creations and and bringing you know something new into the world, I don't know if you saw this posted on Twitter by Josh Fairhurst of Limited Run Games. He announced that he was looking into, he and Limited Run Games, were was looking into creating replacement long box jewel cases um so this is the jewel case that the that the sega cd games came in and then they were used in the sega saturn and then eventually used in the very early early launch window games for the playstation long boxes i think this is a really interesting idea and something that i had been wishing for and really any sega cd sega saturn or playstation long box collector has been wanting this to come to fruition for basically two decades now the original long box jewel cases are absolutely notorious for being fragile anytime you buy them or find them in a store shelf or anything the the hinges are broken they're all scratched to hell and it really just it looks they look like crap on on you know on your sitting on your shelves i really hope this comes comes to be and from what josh posted on twitter it sounded like he looked into it and it's very promising and uh they are you know sort of down the path to potentially making it happen i think they even have found a a manufacturer that uh, is in their price point for you know feasibility tell me what's the difference between 
a replacement case and let's say a replacement label if the quality is as much. And this gets in sort into sort of a Shiva Theseus problem, right? Where if you take an entity and you re- and you replace an aspect of that entity over time, one one aspect at a time, oh, after a while you will essentially have a different thing. It'll be it'll be something made up of a bunch of different parts that have all been replaced and there's no original part left. This this uh, thought experiment or this the philosophical sort of argument often comes in into play when people talk about the presence of a person's soul. Do people have souls? Well, if you were to replace each one of your limbs and then replace your 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 brain and, and then replace your 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 leg or whatever, would you still be the same person that you were at the beginning? Yes or no? So with that in mind, what is the difference from a collector's perspective from a really high-quality replacement jewel case and a real high-quality replacement uh, label or manual even? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great question. Actually, the, the ship of Theseus um, question sort of was the second thing to pop into my head right after, oh, man, I've been waiting for these for years. And then immediately it was, oh, well, what does this mean for the – what does this mean for collectors? And I think we're, I, I, I definitely think that having replacement jewel cases uh, available will slightly impact the collector's market for Sega CD, Sega Saturn, and, and jewel case long box PlayStation 1 games. Uh, you can just look at the, the sold auctions and, and completed sales and see that a two games uh, for two copies of Snatcher, one which has a shattered case and one which is pristine case, uh, they will go for different prices. And it, not, it won't necessarily be a lot. Um, and some of it is just indicative of what the condition of the rest of it will be. If it's a, in a pristine jewel case, it's likely that the rest of it is going to be nicer than if the jewel case is all beat to hell. It's just sort of it. You, you associate the condition of one part of it with likely what the condition of the rest of it will be. But getting to the, the ship of Theseus question, I think the, where the difference is, is that uh, I mean, people have been replacing PlayStation, uh, Dreamcast, uh, you know, regular standard CD jewel cases forever. Um, people replace um, the, the DVD style cases, um, whether it's a replacement uh, original Xbox green case or the white DVD cases for the Wii or even, uh, you know, the Blu-ray cases for PlayStation 3 games uh, or DS games or whatever. Um, I think where the difference is in going back to your label analogy is that a, a replacement label is really replacing part of the original content of the game. Uh, it's it's actual artwork that was produced by the you know the the game company by the publisher as part of what that game's physical experience really is. Whereas the a jewel case or a DVD case or a DS case is really just something that holds that. I think that those are very much interchangeable to a point. I would argue that whether these are whether these impact these replacements impact the value to a great degree will be entirely based on how close uh, Josh and limited run games are able to get to the original stock you know production a, a cd jewel case is a cd jewel case by and large no matter where you get it and there are some variants based on you know slimline cases and cases with multi-disc and how that works but by and large if you're just talking about a single jewel case case as long as you've got the clear insert there are 
there's virtually no difference from a, a, a music CD case to a PlayStation 1 case, and, and those parts are essentially interchangeable. It gets to be a little bit different when you're talking about things where there are, are actual variants and, and recognize variants among um, you know subsets of games. Like if you look at PlayStation 2, the PlayStation 2 DVD cases, they're not just a standard black DVD case. They're, they're a dark navy blue. Some of them have most of them have a PlayStation 2 logo and the PlayStation 2 memory card slot in them. Some of them that don't have the memory card slot have the Sony logo on the inside. So I would argue that uh, something, a PlayStation 2 game that has been replaced with just a, a generic black DVD case is not complete. It needs to have a case that's like the you know the original um, the original style. And whether that has been recreated or not, I, I'm not really all that concerned about if the recreation is in all intents and purposes the exact same as the original for the case same thing with with genesis you know the the original genesis clamshells had either sega logos in them or acclaim logos in them or um by and large you know the they had some sort of identifying factor as opposed to the the recreations that came later whereas a jewel case is a jewel case is a jewel case um and now josh has mentioned that they actually went and researched they pulled up the original patent files and patent drawings drawings for the long box jewel cases and that's actually what they're basing the, all of their uh, production designs off of so I, I think for all intents and purposes these things should be uh, you know a hundred percent legit and really exact replacements for all of those cracked and busted long box jewel cases out there that collectors have uh, you know been been the bane of collectors existence for you know 15 20 years you do you think any of their do you think any of this uh potential uh for L, uh, limited run games to create these replacement cases will be in peril based on the recent news that they have to now start putting esrb ratings on their boxes which will increase their hard costs their production costs for games I'm I'm hoping for your sake no because I would love for them to move forward with this initiative as as and for them to move forward with it uh, for an additional revenue stream. But I, I'm curious, you know, this news that that limited run games does now have to put ESRB ratings on their boxes because the ESRB ratings have changed uh, uh, their restrictions, their qualifications, and console manufacturers have also uh, said that they are now forcing this 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 this. They are forcing games, any game that goes into their system, physical game to go into their system, to have these rate, this uh, sticker, this rating on there. Um, what do you think about this whole whole system? Frankly, I'm kind of bummed. I, I don't have anything against the ESRB ratings. I don't have anything against the PEGI ratings. I really dislike the USK ratings because they're ugly. They're hideous and <laughs> gigantic. Those are the German ratings where it's like a diamond, a hideously colored, huge blight on the game cover. But the ESRB and the PEGI ratings, I'm sort of indifferent to. But I, the one part that does bother me is that it's a mandate from sony and microsoft and nintendo that if you're going to pr produce a physical game that you have to go through and and uh, go through the hurdles go through the expense go through the the time involved in getting it rated and getting getting you know, the the rights to be able to put that on the on the the game label honestly i think it's it's sony's prerogative to require that on their games but if they if they're going to require it i think they should foot the bill now they've long had the 
the policy that any game that was going to be offered in a retail store needed the the ESRB logo. And I I can kind of see that. Again, I I don't think it should be mandated, but I can kind of see that in terms of, you know, getting back to where this whole thing started back with Night Trap. And frankly, I find it, I do find it kind of humorous and ironic that the minute after limited run games releases Night Trap, then (laughs) the very next month, they're forced to succumb to the ESRB rating system. Uh, Obviously, one thing had nothing to do with the other, but I, I, I find it beyond ironic. You say obviously with a lot of conviction. Uh, that's I don't know about that. Maybe <laughs> maybe there was something there to it. Yeah, you never know. That's a good point. Yeah, but I think I think really from what I've read, what prompted the the decision was actually in the works before the Night Trap stuff or the Night Trap re-release, and I think it was all prompted by just a reduction in the the prices that ESRB charged Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but again i i mean for there there are enough hurdles in the way of physical game of physical media being released in gaming that putting another hurdle in front of small developers to get their games released to the public whether it's limited run games whether it's im8 bit whether it's the the signature edition guys i don't like putting more hurdles to physical media if gaming comes to a stage where physical media is dead and it's just uh, essentially you know revocable licenses that we can download that's the time when i probably just stop buying new games and focus on my seven lifetimes worth of backlog (laughs) that'll be the time yeah so it'll take it'll take that before you kind of go back and play those but you'll be able to do it in a lot of comfort i would imagine because by that point your collection will be worth uh substantial amounts even probably more so than it is now uh with no other physical media being produced so you know you'll sell off half of it just ride out into the sunset and play the rest of the half for the rest of your life Except by that point, I'm sure we'll all have, you know, implants in our brains where we could just close our eyes and play Contra, you know, on the Nintendo to our heart's content. So Yeah, but it's not physical media, though. So (laughs) that's true. (laughs) There's still going to be those holdouts. They they want the physical media. Uh, I I, I give a lot of crap to the physical media stuff, but that's I mean, I buy limited run games um so i'm a big fan of physical media too so uh yeah it's it's a little it's a bit of a bummer um but yeah what are you gonna do uh what's not a bummer though um there is a a uh nintendo has publicly announced that they are um telling customers hey don't pay more than 80 dollars for a snes classic uh, which is really good to hear from a big company uh, because they make the same amount of money no matter what, whether you buy it uh, directly from them or whether a scalper buys it directly from them and then resells it, they make the same money. They're selling out of all their stock. It's a fixed cost for them. There's nothing there. So I think it's a very good, I think it's very, very good for Nintendo to come out in front of it and say, hey, everybody, don't buy scalpers. Basically, don't pay for scalper prices because we are going to have more units available for you. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. I mean, are you, are you, you're, you're probably going to pick up a SNES Classic, right? I would imagine. I have one pre-ordered from Amazon UK. Uh, I haven't gotten a pre-order on one of the US ones yet. And I mean, I'm kind of indifferent. I'll I'll find, I'll get one if I find it, but I'm not going to, I definitely won't pay anything more than retail. And I didn't for my NES Classic either. It just was one of those things where I, I walked into a Best Buy and they happened to have them that morning. But I, now, as we record this, uh, it's two days before the launch day 
so by the time this goes live, we will have gone through the SNES Classics opening weekend. And I think at that point, we may get to see at least a little bit. I know there's been announcements by various retailers that I think all, every GameStop store is going to have between 25 and 75 of them um, it, that are non-pre-ordered uh, day one on Friday. I think uh, Targets have announced that they're going to have between 50 and 100 e- in each store. So it sounds like you know, Nintendo's actually putting their money where their mouth is with this production increase because, I mean, they they definitely didn't have this kind of numbers for the NES Classic, and, and frankly, they haven't had this kind of numbers for you know any console that they've released: the Switch, the 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 Wii U, the Wii. Nintendo was notorious for not being able to, you know, either willingly or or not not being able to put uh, enough. Vol- enough quantity on on store shelves at release and i think it's one thing to say hey don't pay 80 dollars for this we'll make enough and it's another thing to you know have a, a parent with a kid that wants an snes classic <laughs> and christmas is coming up and um you know there are none on store shelves I, I think that's where the rubber meets the road i think stating it is 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 a big step though because uh if they don't if the rubber doesn't meet the road then that will be a hit to them. Uh, you know, that'll be a hit to them from just a PR perspective, um, probably from a financial perspective, though I'm sure short-term Nintendo is Nintendo and they will continue to live on forever. But when a company of this size makes a public commitment that specifically addresses a very, very, very big issue, PR nightmare that they had to go through, that that says a lot. So I would be incredibly surprised if, if the rubber did not meet the road, um, but we'll see. Yeah, you mentioned the financial aspect, and I think you can really just look no further than uh, Nintendo's stock price. Um, you know, once once a company makes a you know, a public announcement, that sort of sets shareholder expectations and sets expectations in the financial markets. And now, since the beginning of the year, we've touched on this a little bit before, but it's only gotten you know it's only gone even further since the beginning of 2017, uh, and it's now uh, September 27th as we record this nintendo's stock this year alone has increased 74 percent so i mean nintendo's value as a company has nearly doubled just this year based on the the success of the switch and based on the success of uh you know the announcing of the snes classic and and really is it's rallied in within the last couple of weeks again based on this uh, announcements of of increasing production which means increasing revenue which means increasing income um, and to not hit that, it's essentially uh, like a like a company missing their financial guidance, uh, which would which would be which would be not uh, not great for Nintendo. I mean, you look look at um, kind of the dips that happened after Pokemon Go came out. Nintendo had a huge stock rally um, after Pokemon Go came out, and people started to dwindle, and they weren't able to monetize it, and uh, had all kinds of problems there with. Uh, specifically with regard to investors and stock dipped uh, dipped back down um and i mean that had had to do with the monetization it had to do with investors realizing oh nintendo doesn't own all of pokemon go <laughs> but if you look back to june 1st 2016 which is around the time when pokemon go really started to be beta tested here in the west um nintendo stock prices increased 156 percent in you know what is that 15 months um 
you know, it, that's astounding. Um, the 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 value rally for Nintendo shareholders has been uh, pretty crazy over the last uh, year and a half. Yeah, I don't want to brag, but my one share of Nintendo stock has increased by thirty nine dollars since I bought it. So you basically paid for you know half of your SNES Classic right there. There we go. That's exactly the mentality you need as a financially smart individual. So I will take that advice and immediately buy half of a Nintendo Entertainment System Super Classic. Super that one. (laughs) You mentioned financially smart individuals and some individuals that I have to wonder what the hell they're thinking in business executivism is Atari. Now, details of the Atari box have started to emerge, and every time I see more information, I get sort of less and less excited about this thing. The details that have come out in the last week are the price point. It's going to be 250 to $300, which crazy. Sort of, yeah, it's crazy. It sort of puts it in this weird no-man's land. It's not, it's not a, a $80 SNES classic. It's not sort of that throwback, you know, nostalgia, I'm going to drop under a hundred dollars on this thing just because of the nostalgia factor in the atari name and it's not a 400 to 500 dollar next gen console or pc so i think it really calls into question what this thing is going to do the uh it's been announced that it's going to run linux and that it's really it sounds like it's more pc like than console like the announcements have focused on streaming apps and web browsers and social and really anything but the details on the actual games themselves the atari name is hurting it i mean at, for 250 to 300 dollar price range you can't put the name Atari on it. And I mean, that's what's causing the confusion, I think. If, if it were a brand new console, a, a company that people hadn't really had a, an association with, um, or even if it was Atari making it, but they decided to just call it something completely different, I think it would have a much better chance, at least at uh, finding a niche audience. But even but this, I feel, is even more niche than niche. It's such a small... I, nobody knows what audience is going for. No, They don't know really what audience they're trying to go for. Um, the idea of focusing on social streaming and, 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 and movie streaming and that sort of stuff from your living room. I mean, every single household in this country has five of those already. Everybody has a phone in their pocket that can do all of those things more conveniently than a dedicated set-top TV box. So it's it's very, 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 very strange. I, I don't get it at all. This, to me, screams of a development team looking for a project without any sort of idea in mind. I mean, you look at the timeline on this thing, too, and and... It's really early in the development cycle. They're, they don't have any sort of funding path from Atari on this, and they've announced that their Indiegogo campaign that they're... I mean, they had announced before that they were going to crowdfund this thing without really any kind of details. Well, in the recent stories, it's come out that they're planning an Indiegogo campaign, but that's not even going to launch until the fall of 2018, which then makes you wonder, when is this thing scheduled to come out? And by the time it's come out, if it's 2019, early 2020, how relevant is it? I mean, to me, it sort of screams of the you know, the Atari 5200 being delayed and, and essentially put out when it was already sort of past its prime. Yeah, and this already seems to be past its prime. The, the internal components that are being talked about are essentially equivalent to a mid-range PC. I mean, it's not even a high-end PC that would be able to play AAA games. It would, it just wouldn't satisfy that. So I, I don't know. And the developers are also, you, me- you mentioned earlier, it seems like developers looking for a project. And I think what speaks to that as well is the fact that they are already taking 
they've already promoted the fact that they are going to be taking user input during the development of this project, which they tout as this great thing. Hey, we want to listen to the potential users. We want to take your ideas. We want to put them in there, you know, really make this thing yours. But really what that means in in practical terms is that they don't really know what they want to do. Um, They should have a strong enough idea. They should have a strong enough team to be able to develop something first to get user input after it's completed, after it's done, or after it's at least prototyped. But they're not even doing that. They're just saying, hey, what do you want us to do? We have we have a few guys sitting in cubicles twiddling their thumbs. We kind of own the Atari name. We want to do something with it. What do you think we should do? Kids like social medias, right? Let's put that on a screen. Uh, kids like Atari still kind of sort of, right? Let's uh, package it with some of those games. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Where do we find the Twitters to put on here? <laughs> Got to go to hey, the Twitter hey, mines. Jim. Hey, Jim, do you know where the Twitters is at? Oh, I've heard stories of the Twitters and the Twitter mines. Yeah, we got to get us some of them Twitter mines. <laughs> this is just going to be a disaster. I, I think this is going to be, you know, ColecoVision all over again. I mean, the last time Atari launched a $250 console, it was the Jaguar, right? And I mm-hmm. mean, that that was destined for success. <laughs> I will say I played the Jaguar for the first and only time in my life at the uh, at the uh, video game museum in Frisco, Texas a few uh, last year, I think it was. Um, and I was actually impressed. If I had that as a kid, my mind would have been blown. It was pretty cool. I actually enjoyed it. So I'm sad that it didn't get well, the recognition it probably deserved. Yeah, me too. I I was actually really obsessed with the Jaguar in you know back in its day. I was in high school when it came out, basically. And I wanted one so badly. I didn't get one until it was essentially being clearanced out when I worked at KB Toys. And I think I picked, it, picked up the Jaguar itself for... and I picked up just a slew of games for probably $5 a piece, but I wanted, I would always look at the back of the video game of game pro and some of those video games. And they would have like the one ad for the the company that would, it would do imports. It would do all sorts of these things that you just never saw on store shelves. And I drooled over that $250 Jaguar for ages and then (laughs) you know once it crashed i finally was able to to get one but i I mean it's still i still enjoy it i actually just recently ordered a some jaguar stuff from germany there's a company in germany that has made a device called the jaguar kitty box Hmm. and it's sort of a play on there there wasn't a, a device for the jaguar when it was actually out called the jaguar cat box and what it was is it plugged into the the av port on the back and it made it available it was a like a multi-tap or a, a networking um you know a, a system link device and it also did rgb out it did um you know a high quality sound out it had some networking capabilities and it was really rare um and this is sort of a, a play on that device except the nice thing with this kitty box is that it actually outputs uh, HDMI. Nice. So it'll actually do some upscaling and it'll output output native HDMI. Uh, I believe it's 1080p. So I'm uh, really looking forward to, to checking that out. Uh, this company also re- makes replacement Jaguar controller overlays, so you can get you know you can replace the controller overlays that are always missing when you when you, even when you find box Jaguar games, they never have the overlays. Um, so that kind of gives you you know what what the plethora of controller buttons on the the Jaguar controller actually do gives you the map for those. So it's kind of cool to see the the, the Jaguar stuff still. Uh, being supported by the community sounds ship of theseus to me replacing those those cover face buttons 
Oh, well, I'm not going to replace them. I'm just going to be able to use replacements so that I don't damage my actual ones. How dare you correct me? How how dare <laughs> you? Uh, I, I think if there's any part that needed to be replaced in which we could fully embrace this whole ship of Theseus idea, uh, it would probably be replacing me for the duration of this episode. So uh, for you listeners out there, um, I just have to apologize. I have been uh, – I, I don't like bringing personal crap into the, into the podcast. Um, it was just a crummy day for me. So I've been kind of uh, a little bit low the whole the whole time, um, and I apologize. I'm usually a little bit uh, more on top of things. So I, I please don't judge this episode if you're new to the episode on my performance during this episode. I, I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. With that being said, terrible. I know I'm, ter- I'm, terrible. I'm a terrible person. Terrible. Um, with that being said, what do you say we round out this episode? Are we at five? Is that what you said earlier? This Are is we- episode five. God, Can you believe bullshit. that? No. We've been doing this for two months now. Oh my god, that explains the gray hair that I had three months ago. This is longer than any relationship I've ever had. Wow, I feel. <laughs> are you going to give me a present for for our uh, four month anniversary? I'm. A, I actually already ordered you one of these mouse pads from that picture you sent me earlier. Oh my god, now I'll have two. <laughs> <laughs> Half the time I wasn't listening to you talk, I was ordering that mouse pad. So I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I well, should've... you know, this way you'll have a backup in case anything uh, unforeseen should happen mm. to the first one. That the collector mentality. Now I know why you keep everything packaged in your collection. If yeah, I ever visit keep, your house, keep it joking dish. If I ever visit your house, I just imagine the entire place. If I brought a black light into that place, it would just be glowing white. But but all of the games will be protected, so that's good news. Hey, always how about use you, protection, folks. How about you tell uh, the the listeners here where they can find us, where they can find you, uh, and I'll give you a test where they can find me. Ooh, well, Caleb does his best work on the YouTube's. That's where he's most entertaining, and you can find him on the YouTube's at Caleb mm-hmm. J Ross. Mm-hmm. You can find him on the Twitters at. Caleb J. Ross. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me on the Twitters as VG Collectaholic. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at VG Collectaholic. I post a lot of pics about old games that I'm trying to highlight and think don't get too much love. I post pickups. I post uh, pictures of consoles and, and modifications and all kinds of crazy crap. You can find us collectively. You found us already if you're listening to this podcast, but we are at mastersofunlocking.com. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We are on the Google Plays. Uh, pretty much any place where you put podcasting goodness or badness or mediocreness into your brain, <laughs> you will find us. That sold it. I think I'm going to start listening now. You know, I just assumed that you were the one clicking all of the downloads <laughs> because we've gotten some downloads. Somebody's listening somewhere. I, I just assumed that it was my mom. <laughs> I've trained a monkey in a very particular <laughs> I, task. I don't so. even want to know what you and that monkey and the mouse pad are doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a video. Oh, my God. And on that note, let's cue oh. the music and get the hell out of here. Folks, thanks for listening. We will see you again in two weeks for episode six of the Masters of Unlocking Podcast.